Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank them for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Mike Witt, a field agronomist with Iowa State University Extension. Mike will be discussing several different areas of cover crop research. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Happy to be here today. So to get us started, Mike, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I am a field agronomist for Iowa State University. I serve West Central Iowa. I also am the Iowa State University on-farm trials demonstration coordinator. So that is another part of my job. Uh, over here at Iowa State. Fantastic. Well, um, let's go ahead and dive right in to our topic for today. Uh, Let's start with maybe talking about some of the cover crop trials that you've been conducting, comparing 30-inch rows to 60-inch rows. What has been uh, the outcome of some of that research? Yeah, so we have looked at a lot of different cover crop activities and cover crop situations. And the one that we're talking about here first, the 30 versus 60 inch rows, is one that has gained some traction, then lost some traction, then gained some more, I would say, across the state of Iowa. So what we do with the ISU on-farm demonstration trials is we take farmers' ideas and what farmers want to see, they come to us and they say, I want to know, will this practice work? So that's one of the things that we do. So with a 30 versus 60 inch rows, that was one where we've done multiple trials over multiple years in which we've looked at pretty much all the aspects of that situation, trying to figure out how can we make it work? How can farmers maximize the opportunities for it to work? Because you know, overall the 30 versus 60 inch, I will say 60 inch rows aren't going to revolutionize and aren't going to change the agriculture industry as we know it. However, in certain situations, it can be beneficial if your farming situation or profile allows for it. Let's talk about that a little bit. You said that uh, 60 inch rows might be appropriate in certain scenarios. What might be some examples of those situations where 60 inch rows would be a good choice? Yeah, so some of those situations would be number one, if you really want to utilize that increased biomass and forage for a grazing situation. Um, If you have cattle or access to cattle or things like that, that is a situation in which not only do you get your grain yield from your fields, and if you're going to run the cattle on the corn stalks anyway, you get an added feedstuff going in there as well. So that is a huge advantage if you are set up for that situation. I think we'll talk a little later about some other pitfalls that might come with that, but that is one of the opportunities for that. Another opportunity is if you really want to increase and I would say jumpstart the ability to 
work on some soil health situations, improving biomass and different things like that that can be done, which help overall with the cover crops, you know, helping with preventing of erosion if you have highly erodible soils, different supplies of nutrients, some weed suppressions and other things like that. So if you want to do that situation or if you have a field that needs that, this could be one in which you can do that. Now, there might be some yield sacrificing caveats with that, but again, you know, it depends on what you need to do. So back to your research comparing 30-inch rows and 60-inch rows, what did you find in that, those trials? What was the, the results of those research trials? Well, the results of the research trials would be, the solid word I would use for that would be mixed in there. Um, like I said, some situations we were able to get yields for the crop, the corn crops that were either on par or slightly above um, ones that were 30 inch rows in doing a comparison. However, there were others in which there was a significant um, yield decline from those, um, from going to a 60 inch row over a 30. So there, like I said, it was kind of a mixed bag in there. Some of the big issues that we had were we had some issues that had to do with weeds. Obviously on a 60 inch situation, you have more potential for weeds to creep in there if your cover crop is not able to get established to block that out. Um, we also had some issues with some species that we chose to use within a 60 inch row versus a 30 inch row and really just kind of some of the issues that come along uh, with that um, in those situations. So let's talk a little bit more about some of those cover crop species. Which ones did you find that worked better in 30 inch rows versus 60 inch rows? Well, the biggest issue in the 30-inch row situation, and we deal with this in, in multiple things, is uh, getting that crop to be able to grow and establish itself within the time frame we're planting it, also in that shading area and the lack of moisture that goes on underneath that crop canopy. So those are the big situations in the 30-inch, and there's very few crops that we have found that were able to get that establishment really going strong in there. And that's uh, something I would say that's pretty widespread across everywhere. You know, it's just really hard to get things going and established in an already standing cornfield um, going out there. However, in a 60 inch, um, we were able to get some species such as rye, radishes, uh, trichocale, and some other ones along those lines that established very well um, going in there for, I would say, for quite a bit of our 60-inch row locations. There were some that still had some issues that came along with soil topography, soil moisture, and other things, and just very competitive weeds. But being able to get those established in a 60-inch was, was much easier to do. For clarification, what were some of those cover crop species that did work well in that 30-inch scenario? I know you mentioned that there were very few of those species, but specifically, which ones, which ones did you find worked? Yeah, um, we were able to look at those species. We looked at cowpeas is one species that I would say was able to get established um, if it was planted early enough within the 30-inch rows. Another one would be rye. 
that, those would probably be the two big ones that we were able to get established in there, um, depending on the planting timing. So um, radishes are also another one uh, that we were able to get established. It's just the establishment volume and the biomass volume in the 30 inch is so drastically different than what we were able to get in the 60 inch uh, for those situations. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about biomass production. Uh, what is the difference in the amount of biomass produced between 30 inch rows and 60 inch rows? Oh, I would say it's, it, you can get, if weather conditions and environmental factors allow it, you can easily get two to three times as much biomass, if not more in a 60 inch than you can in a 30 inch. Um, just the light availability um, and the moisture availability that you have there is just so significantly different in that 60 versus 30. Um, that canopy is so wide open, you can easily get a lot more growth and development of just about any of the species that you would choose to plant um, that are more standard species within those 60 inch rows. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of difference. So of course, yield, for the cash crop that's grown in the field is a big motivator for growers. How did the cash crop yields compare for the two different row widths? Well, the cash crop yields were one of the areas of focus that really you need to work with a 30 versus 60 inch system in order to, I will say, fine tune it to make sure that you get it right. So what I would say on that for the yields, what we ended up seeing, like I said before, was we saw um, some fields that were on par with yields. We also saw some that were significantly different in the yields, a 10 to 20 bushel loss in there. And some of those reasons, again, had to do with weed suppression, but some of them also had to do with just how we set up the field and the dynamics of that cash crop. So the first thing that we did in the yield we needed to realize was when we are setting up this field, we have to look at the population for those individual hybrids. Not every single hybrid that you would plant out there in the field is going to work in this situation. So some hybrids are set up for a higher population, some are set up for a lower. And also when you think about yields, you have to compare apples to apples. So if you have, let's say a 30,000 population that you're out there planting in a 30 inch field, and all of a sudden, all you want to do is plug up every other row on your planter. So now you have 60-inch rows. Well, you've actually reduced your population significantly because you're removing half the plants from that field. So you have to increase the population in those other rows in order to compensate. You would never be able to just plug rows, have the same population, and get the same yield on a field. It's just not possible because you're taking out half. So... Right. That is one of the situations that you need to look at with there is selecting hybrids that are designed for high population and high density. And then once you have that selected, then you might be able to get a little bit better, fairer shot at getting to the yield levels that you're looking for. Okay. Okay. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. So the fields, were you also looking at um, – how 30 inch rows and 60 inch rows build soil health for those cover crop trial fields? We weren't specifically looking at that. We were looking at the biomass and looking at the biomass difference 
And obviously with more biomass that's there, um, there is greater benefits for soil health uh, capabilities that go in there like some of the other things that I mentioned earlier. But we didn't specifically look at ratios within the soil or other things like that because we hadn't done this practice for multiple years within the same field to be able to really see some of those significant differences in there. So it's just more of an extrapolatory situation there where if you do that repeatedly, I mean, you will get those benefits going forward, but on a one-year basis, just a one-time one thing, you probably are not going to be able to see, other than maybe erosion of, erosion factors, you won't be able to see those differences right away in the soil. So when you were comparing 30-inch and 60-inch cornrows, did you all see the edge effect? And um, for our audience, if you could explain kind of what the edge effect is, that would be great. Yeah, so the edge effect a lot of times is if you're driving down the field or driving down the road, excuse me, and you look over to a cornfield, you will say, wow, those plants there have really large ears and they might have two ears going on there. I wonder if the whole, but when you walk into the field, you don't see that same thing. It, usually the ears shrink down in size and you get down to one ear per plant. That edge effect is the ability of that plant to utilize that sunlight and the other nutrients that are available on the edge to help it grow bigger and stronger in there and produce more seeds. As you get across the field, you will see that that tends to go away unless there's gaps uh, in the field. So that's kind of the edge effect and ear flex is another thing that goes in there. Um, some hybrids themselves have the ability to flex to a larger ear in those situations and others do not, others are pretty set. So what we looked at with the 30 versus 60 is depending on the hybrid that was planted, you could see some of those edge effects. However, a lot of them were mitigated due to the fact that we increased our population density of those plants in order to get the, the numbers right so we could at least have a chance to be on par with yield. So in my thoughts, if we would have kept a lower population and had that, would we have seen a larger edge effect of those 60-inch row ears? Absolutely. However, I don't think it would have made up for the yield difference you would get by losing half the plants in the field. So um, that, that was one of the things we saw in, in regards to edge effect. Okay. So let's shift gears here a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about the projects that you've worked on related to interseeding cover crops and corn. Yes. So interseeding is another situation that we're looking at at Iowa State. And this is one in which what we're doing is we have a interseeder drill unit in which we will plant cover crops at two different stages for this project at a V5 growth stage in corn and a V7 to V8 growth stage in corn. And what we are looking at with that is we are looking at different species to determine if they can grow earlier in the year, if they can get themselves established, and if they can survive through the shading and through the lack of moisture that goes on during the Iowa summers. So again, the whole goal of this is to try to figure out can we mirror planting a cover crop with an earlier season activity, such as side dressing or something like that, so that we can get our cover crops on, get one pass, save that fall planting, save some of those other things that we have for issues, 
and if we can just get that done right away. So that's one of the things that we're looking at there. And so in your research, what cover crop species did you find worked well in interseeding in that earlier stage and then at the V7, V8 stage? Yep, so what we looked at for research plots, we looked at a we looked at only standalone species for the research, and then we did some on-farm trials as well uh, with farmers, and those we did a seed mix. So the individual ones that we did for research plots, we looked at a cereal rye, an annual rye, a cow pea, and a red clover. Those were the four that we looked at. And in those research trials, what we found was in the V5 stage, we were able to get good, very good establishment on the cereal rye and the cow peas. The annual rye and the clover did not give us much establishment in the V5 or the V7 stage. And in reality, the annual rye and red clover really didn't do much uh, this whole season. Now, I will preface that by saying we did have locations all across all of Iowa. However, Iowa was in a lot of a drought this year in a lot of places. So to say that that's necessarily the fairest comparison for some of those, no, not necessarily. But the data is what it is and what we have seen going in there. So um, at the V7 stage, we also got very good establishment of the rye and the cow peas going in there. For the on-farm mixture, when we planted those, we planted those either at a V5 or a V7, V8 stage, um, depending when we were able to get to those individual fields. And we did see greater establishment of those in the V5 than we did in the V7 or V8. So the seeding mix that we used for the on-farm trial was a red clover, cow pea, radish, and a cereal rye. We removed the annual rye from the on-farm seeding mix because annual rye has the ability to, uh, if it gets away from you, can be a difficult one to control in a field and we didn't really want farmers to have any opportunity of having a weed introduced by our, our plots in there. So, but we're still ongoing with this research. Um, what we are seeing now in the fall of some of those plots is again, I'll, the cow pea would be the one I would say that is the standout as the one that has survived fairly well in the droughty shaded situation for this year. Um, we do not have the results yet for all the biomass and other things that we have taken over the course of this year. We'll be doing this study again next year. Hopefully we won't have droughts and we'll be able to see some differenting results going in there. But if you want the highlights of that, I would say the cowpea was the one that stood, stood out as the most um, usable one in those interceding trials. Okay. So, what does biomass levels look like in an interceding situation like that? Well, really, there's two different ways to look at that. It depends on the seeding method. If you do just a broadcast seeding method where you would seed on the top, you would get less establishment and less biomass going forward um, throughout the whole season. Um, within an actual planting or interseeding like we did and drilled that, you can get uh, greater establishment going in there. However, the overall biomass total in that interseeder this year for what we saw was, I would say, very, very small going in there for a total biomass. Now, again, I will preface that by saying this is in Iowa. Um, I've seen some research out of the University of Minnesota that shows that they can get some 
establishment going in there as well as other places out east in Pennsylvania and other situations like that, maybe in Indiana, where I've seen that some people can get those situations. So I'm not saying you cannot get very good biomass and cannot get it established. I'm saying for us for this year and in the Iowa situation, this is what we ran into. But a lot of it comes down to environmental factors. Will the species grow? Yes, cereal rye will grow. Cowpeas will grow under there. Annual rye and red clover in Iowa, I'm not as high on to grow in those situations, but I think we could get better establishment if better environmental factors were, were in play. Okay. So when you're interceding and trying to select cover crop species and say you're looking at cow peas or uh, red clover as a potential cover crop species, should growers take soil type and the topography of the field into consideration when choosing cover crop species and in an interceding situation or is soil type and topography not as important? Well, soil type and topography will matter um, when it determines what you really want that cover crop to do. The whole point of interceding of cover crops or any cover crops really is you're utilizing those cover crops to help obviously with soil biomass, but you're, I'm sorry, soil biology, but you're also looking to solve a problem. So if you're looking at, you have a highly erodible field for topography, then you're going to want to have your rye in that as for an establishment going forward, regardless of if you can plant it early or late. So, and soil type, same way, if you have a highly compacted soil, you really want those radishes in there or other ones that could help with some of that compact. So those situations never change. It's just when we're able to get them planted and if we can actually get benefits and grow them for that. So yes, yeah, soil type and topography does matter in there. I would also say, you know, environmental factors throughout the summer matter just as much as those do. So, Let's talk a little bit about now about um, some of the projects you've been working on related to using cover crops for weed suppression. What has been some of the, the outcomes of your research in that area? Well, this is actually a new project that we're probably just going to start. So I don't have many outcomes for it, but I have some ideas. So okay. there's some other research going on at Iowa State. Um, that will involve suppression of weeds via cover crop. And what we are looking at is we are looking at taking that on a on-farm trial or a larger scale basis and really looking at the economics of that. So what we are probably going to drill down and focus on is one crop, which would be a cereal rye. And we're going to look at planting that in the fall or in the spring, depending on probably multiple situations. But the goal of the project is to see what does the economics look like if we can reduce our herbicide usage and replace some of that herbicide usage with a rye cover crop? So to explain that, what I would say is, let's say in the springtime, in a, and this would be a, going into the soybean year of the field. I will preface it by that. That is what we're looking at. We're looking at something very specific. So if we have a cornfield and we're gonna go to the soybeans next year, if we are able to plant cereal rye, plant it dense enough, and get it established, 
so that you do not have the weed competition that you normally would have in that pre-application burn down timeframe. If you could eliminate that herbicide application, replace it with a growing green cover crop, turn around, plant your cover crops or plant your soybeans into those crops green, then at that point terminate with just a Roundup application, saving money on there because a Roundup application is definitely cheaper than other uh, herbicide ones. And then come back again with your post-emergent spray to clean up things like that. Would that situation work? And would it be economically feasible to do? Now, there are a lot of factors that go into that. And a lot of things that can be good or can go wrong if you have poor rye establishment and things like that. So that's why we're really looking at that as being an opportunity for cover crops to be integrated into a system in a specific time that they can utilize that to save farmers money on some of the herbicide issues that we have going forward. So um, one of the things I like to tell farmers when they say, well, you still have that cover crop is acting kind of like a weed or it's sitting there on the field and you have, you know, all that stuff growing. And what I will say to those farmers is if I give you the opportunity to spray your normal suite of weeds that you have out there, 10, 12, 14 different weed species, legumes, um, as broadleaves, as well as grasses, you have to spray to kill that, or you can spray one weed and you know you can kill it with Roundup, which are you going to take? well, you're always going to take the one with a Roundup because it's easy and cheap. That's uh -huh. the way I look at some of those cereal rye in that situation is that a weed is only ever a plant out of place. So utilizing that rye to help suppress other ones could be a way to help things moving forward. Well, and I know costs are one of the big uh stumbling blocks when it comes to getting growers to try cover crops. Um, so I'm really excited to hear that you'll be looking at the economics of uh, using cover crops. However, uh, I do think that it's, it would be interesting to hear growers' thoughts on, um, you know, using that cover crop, not just to, to keep weeds away, but also they're getting those soil health benefits as well, uh, where they wouldn't be getting that necessarily from your random weed. So uh, a lot of yes, interesting things to look at there. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of potential benefits in there. Um, again, though, it is, it is a little scary for some farmers to plant into growing green rye um, uh -huh. soybeans if you haven't done it before. And I fully acknowledge that. And it's, it's thinking outside the box a little bit. And obviously there's costs of the cover crops going in there right. and establishing them. But it's a trade-off and we need to figure out yeah. if trade-off makes sense. Yep. That's when you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking is you're trading the herbicide costs for the cost of the cover crop. But in the end, you're still getting more from that cover crop because you're getting the weed suppression and you're getting those soil health benefits that will help the soybean crop later on. So it's, it is an investment. It just, uh, you kind of have to think it through to all the steps uh, yep. as you're making that decision. Absolutely. So that's a, we'll, we'll call that one the teaser. That's the state who <laughs> we determined on that because um, it sounds all great and sounds like everything should work perfect, but in life that never usually happens. So we'll have to well, see how that turns out. 
And I mean, you never know. In Iowa, you might have something come along like the derecho, and that totally turns everything on its head. <laughs> that is a true statement for this year, yes. <laughs> so um, to kind of wrap up our conversation today, um, what research have you done looking at grazing and cover crops? Yeah, so what we've looked at in the grazing versus cover crop situation is we've looked at a couple different things. We've looked at grazing growth rate. We've also looked at compaction and soil issues that you can get from grazing cattle onto individual paddocks, I would say, that have growing cover crops. So some of the issues that farmers have with utilizing cover crops for grazing is they worry about in the spring the availability of being able to have enough growth to make it worth their time to graze cattle. They also are concerned about the compaction that can happen from the cattle on those wet soils in the spring while they're out there grazing. And also in turn in the fall, do you have enough biomass? Is it worth the time to turn the cattle out and get some of that stuff done? So that's some of the situations that we've looked at in there. Um, we haven't seen too much of a compaction issue um, in some of the soils that we've looked at, obviously, if you have a highly compactable soil, that, that's going to be a different story in there. Uh, establishment of cover has a lot to do with the individual year and when you got them planted and things along those lines. But the biggest thing, going back to any grazing situation, even in the 30 versus 60 inch rows in which we talked about, do farmers want to utilize that for grazing? You have to have that ability in place to use it. That's one of the reasons why I said the 30 versus 60 inch row research and some of the things there really is dependent on if you can use it. Not every single farm, you're going to be able to string fence, bring water, run cattle out through it. It's just not gonna happen. It's not gonna be feasible. You can't move the cattle all around all those places to those fields. However, if there are ones close enough that you can do that, it is a source that you can utilize for that. So that's one of the issues with the establishment of it in Iowa is, yes, there's a lot of grazing potential, but do you have the ability to get the cattle to the area to graze? It's nice you could graze it, but if you don't have that ability, it's not going to be there. So that's one of the things as far as adoption goes that we've seen is, yes, it can work. Yes, you can get things to graze. However, is there enough feed stuff in there? So because having a rye cover crop is much better for grazing in those, or a grassy cover crop is much better for grazing in those situations than a legume because the legumes just don't have the biomass and the cattle will eat those very quickly and then you have nothing. So uh, it's always right. a going forward in that. Yeah, so it, that's interesting that you say that because um, in my experience, livestock producers, the feed costs are their biggest expense but yet they seem reluctant to take advantage of using cover crops and, and grazing as almost a, not a free feed source, but a, an available feed source that might be right there and available. Are there certain types of livestock operations that seem to work better for grazing cover crops? Well, I would say that usually the smaller scale livestock operations would be the ones that might work better just because they might have the ability to move the cattle at an easier rate. 
Um, if you have large volumes, it's really hard to get things out and moved around. And it also depends a lot on where those fields are, you know, the actual physical location of that and where your cattle are located and things like that. And if you can even get them moved around to where those fields are. So um, those are a lot of the things that, that I have seen some issues with is it's, you know, it's really about physically being able to move those cattle from place to place because, I mean, you can't just walk them down the road too often for 15 miles or 10 miles to go from one field to the other. You know, right. it takes quite a bit to move them and the fencing is expensive and so is water movement and things like that. Uh, whereas if you can keep them close by, you might be able to get away from those things. So there's a lot of other factors involved, not just not just the feed stuff. Sure. So we're running out of time for today. Uh, where can our listeners go if they want more information about um, all these different cover crop research projects? Well, a lot of the projects and a lot of the things that we've talked about today, they're going to be on the Iowa State University Integrated Crop Management website. Um, I could give you the whole little thing with the .com, or you could just go and Google and type I Integrated Crop Management Iowa State, and you'll find it. So um, <laughs> that's, that's the website where a lot of the different articles are posts and other things like that are located for Iowa State. Um, we also have the Iowa Cover Crop Resource Guide and things like that in our extension store in which a lot of these things will be posted and where they will be at there. Um, people can also feel free to contact me if they would like um, through Iowa State University and I'm more than happy to speak with people on things that I've seen, research that and demonstration trials that I've done and other things like that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, thanks so much, Mike, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. We'd also like to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's program. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at www.covercropstrategies.com.